check, make sure everything's working. Um, since this is our first service together as in this hybrid format, so welcome. I sense a lot of excitement, a lot of eagerness and joy, and rightfully so. Uh, this is our first hybrid service with both outdoor and online. Uh, for those that are in person, it's nice and warm. I'm just kidding, chilly. Uh, I can tell that some people came very prepared with sleeping bags and big old comfy, whatever you call it. Um, but hopefully you guys came dressed warmly and if you're cold, I have nothing to offer but comforting words of be warmed and be filled. Um, this is all a bit surreal for me just because I haven't preached here in person for over a year. Uh, about a year and a half now, but I am grateful that we as a church, as a fellowship, are able to gather and study God's word. And so whether you're joining us online or here in person, what a privilege it is to study the scriptures. Now, if you've been with us for uh, the weeks prior, we've been studying the book of Romans, making our way through the opening sections of that epistle. And if we were continuing... Uh, with our regularly programmed schedule in God's wise providence, we would be examining the rest of Romans 1, uh, how God gives us up in our sin and we exchange natural relationships for homosexuality. So we're not going to do that tonight. I thought for our first in-person service in a hybrid format, it's okay to take a brief break from Romans and study a passage that's more on the positive side and readily encouraging. And so I hope that doesn't disappoint anyone. And yet at the same time, I think our passage today is not just to match the excitement we feel tonight or to simply provide or produce uh, feel-good vibes. Our passage actually has much relevance for the times we find ourselves in. You know, kind of as we figure out how to do hybrid ministry and what praxis will look like moving forward. As we wonder what the future holds with vaccinations reopening and a recovering economy. As we lament and consider how to navigate through our nation's turmoils with hate crimes and senseless murders, this passage tonight grounds us because it plants us before God. And so whether the sun is shining or we're walking through the darkness, as Christians, we trust God and take comfort knowing that he will lead us through. You see, the temptation is to fix our attention on our circumstances, our problems, our busyness, our worries, our ambitions, our to-do lists. That as we keep staring and staring at these things, they become bigger and bigger in our eyes until they eclipse God himself. But the way we navigate through both the highs and the lows, our issues and our victories, or just the mundane day-to-day -day life, is by setting our sights upon God until he becomes big, big enough to envelop and then inform everything else. And that's what our passage aims to do, what our passage tonight helps us with. So we'll be studying arguably the most popular psalm, Psalm 23. Now, this psalm has been read, recited, memorized countless numbers of times. It is well known to Christians and non-Christians alike. 
Psalm 23 spans only six verses, but its vivid imagery has made it unforgettable. It's been written on bookmarks, plaques, tombstones, and cheesy Christian t-shirts. It's been featured in musical pieces such as Bach's Cantata number 112. It's found its way to the big screen, including in blockbusters like Titanic. It's been integrated even into the lyrics of many albums, even rap songs like Coolio's Gangster's Paradise. Psalm 23 is everywhere, especially where we probably hear it the most. Funerals. Funerals. Psalm 23 was shared at Whitney Houston's memorial service. It was recited by a passenger aboard United Airlines Flight 93 in September 11 attacks. And that's the usual context, right, that we associate with this psalm during situations that are dark and deathly. Now, as fitting as it is for Psalm 23 to be read and remembered during funerals, it's all the more fitting for it to be read, remembered, and lived. Because really, this psalm is not about dying, but about living. So let's start by reading Psalm 23 in its entirety. If you haven't already, open in your Bibles to Psalm 23. I'll go ahead and read our passage for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Psalm 23. This is the word of God. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. God, we come before you humbled to know that you are a good and gracious God. You have revealed yourself through the pages of scripture. You have manifested your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, you have offered salvation by grace as we place our faith in your son. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to work upon our hearts, not only in saving us, but sanctifying us, making us more like Christ, that you would use your word as an instrument to pierce through our callousness of heart or to realign us that we may be obedient to our Lord and Savior. And we pray that new affections would be given, that our desire would be to live for Christ. So use your word to that end to exalt yourself, to show us how lovely and wonderful and glorious you are, that we might be enamored, that we might desire to know you and to make you known. So please help us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 23 falls in the middle of a small trilogy because Psalms 22 to 24 
are a collection of psalms that deal and describe God's promised one, the Messiah to come. Psalm 22 presents a servant who will bear unspeakable pain and wear a cross. Psalm 24, on the other hand, points to a sovereign who will rule with absolute authority and wear a crown. But Psalm 23, the psalm we're studying tonight, for the most part, portrays a shepherd who provides and cares for his sheep. And it's incredible to consider that what binds these psalms together, again, so this trilogy of psalms, Psalms 22 to 24, uh, describe and tell of one person, Jesus Christ. And what's incredible is on this side of the cross, where we stand in history, we can view Psalm 22 as speaking of Jesus' past works, as a suffering servant in our place. And Psalm 24 looks ahead to when Christ will return as the sovereign king. Now, Psalm 23 focuses our attention on how God serves, how God serves as a shepherd, loving and guiding his own. This is the first role that David, the psalmist, highlights for us to promote trust in God, to inform our living. Our first point, the Lord is our shepherd. No surprise there. The Lord is our shepherd. Now, a shepherd might seem like a strange character to feature, right? What probably emerges in your minds is an emasculate man, maybe with droopy eyes, a a timid smile, all while holding a cute wooden stick. He's this soft and gentle person dressed in heavenly white as he serenely whispers and leads happy sheep. I mean, isn't that the image often communicated in books and media? The picture is dreamy and nice. But the portrait of a shepherd captured in the Bible is far from this cuddly caricature. David, the author of this psalm, and a shepherd himself, gives account of his responsibilities and adventures as a shepherd. You remember when David steps forward to confront Goliath. Everyone is intimidated by this giant Goliath, but David, well, he's itching for battle. And what makes him fit to fight? What are his credentials to enter the ring? Well, the scars he has acquired, the wounds he has won as a shepherd. He reminisces of past clashes, taking down bears, grabbing lions by their beard to kill them in order to protect his flock. You see, a shepherd was a manly man. He looked more like the flannel guy on the brawny paper towels than your puny precious moment figurine. And the shepherd's rugged look was representative of who he was, a person with respect and authority, protection and power. In 2 Samuel 5, 2, the Lord commissions David as king over the nation. How? He says to David, you shall be a shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. The verse ties the two together, David's role as a shepherd with his duty as a king. That the two are inseparable. 
Far from being a passive doormat or this woolly master, David's charge as a shepherd is to exercise authority and righteously lead God's people. And with such a prestigious position, David's first words here in this psalm ought to leave us floored. Because look at it again in your Bibles. Verse 1 says, the Lord is my shepherd. You see the contrast there? David, the shepherd over Israel, for 40 years acknowledges he is but a sheep in the fold of God. This is incredible. This teaches us our biggest boast is our smallness before God. Forget our accomplishments on the field, at home, or in the office. Throw out our diplomas and awards. What's your claim to fame? What is your confidence in life? Is it who you are? Or is it who God is? Praxis, our proudest position is our humble identity, is belonging to God. And David rejoices because he understands before he is ever some hotshot, some great sovereign and shepherd over entire nation, Israel, he is a little buying sheep in the flock of God. And instead of finding that offensive, it's actually good news, great news. The Lord, the covenant-keeping God of the universe, has set his heart on caring for his own. The great I Am stoops low to tend to the needs of his sheep. Now, we need to be careful because our mistake, our error, is to generalize this truth. We think to ourselves, yes, the great God is the shepherd over a vast number of people. You know, he led Israel back then. He leads the church today. We yawn and then we file that truth away. But there is an intimacy here in Psalm 23 that ought to melt our hearts and move us. Because notice in this psalm, there are no plural pronouns like we, us, they, them. No, in this psalm, the pronouns are only in the singular. My, me, I, he, and you. It's individualized. Beloved, you need to hear how precious this is. That the pronouns are gushing with tenderness and affection. It's visceral. It's very personal. So let me ask, can you echo, David, that the Lord is my shepherd? David's own delight is an invitation. It's to draw you to God himself. Because when you do, it changes everything. There's a direct relation between the Lord as shepherd and our outlook on life. David writes, if you look and continue on, because he is my shepherd, I shall not want. The idea here isn't that God grants whatever we wish or we always get what we want. Rather, more properly understood, these words communicate something more profound and reassuring. That those who trust in the Lord as their shepherd will never lack whatever they truly need. Hear that again. Everything necessary in life, the Lord provides. And if you find that hard to believe, well, then you only need to examine the proof. Watch how the Lord shepherds 
Read on in verse 2. He says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Notice where the spotlight is. How the Lord is so active in his shepherding that he's the initiator. He's the actor. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. Why does the shepherd take charge? Well, it's very simple. Because sheep are foolish. Sheep are some of the dumbest animals ever. You know, years ago I read uh, in this article that in Turkey, a shepherd was eating his breakfast while his flock of 1,500 were grazing. So one sheep decided to be bold and embark on his own adventure. Well, we all know that courage plus stupidity equals tragedy. So you have this silly sheep just bumbling around and around and around, and then he walks straight off a cliff, straight to its death. But here's the crazy part. All 1,499 of the other sheep, they followed suit and walked off the same cliff. In fact, in the end, 450 sheep dropped to their death. And the only reason the other 1,000 or so didn't die was because the pile of 450 rose so high that it cushioned the fall for the rest. You know, I read this article and I found it funny, so I told my wife, Bear, and her first reaction, her first thought was to tell me that if I was the first sheep to go off the cliff, it'd be okay if she was the next because I would provide enough cushion. That's kind of mean, but she got me. Now, all that to say, we can understand why being a shepherd was not easy. Shepherds had to live with their sheep 24 hours a day. There's no part-time off or a pay-time off for this job. Caring for the flock was unending. Day, night, summer and winter, in good condition and poor, the shepherd relentlessly leads, guides, and tends, and protects his sheep. Being a shepherd, obviously then, wasn't a very popular occupation. It was grueling, demanding, and yet the Lord chooses by his own volition to be your shepherd, to be mine. And he's the best shepherd even when you and I are the dumbest sheep. He'll force you to lie down in luscious fields to feed you with that which will truly nourish your souls instead of the harmful, empty offerings of this world. He directs you to peaceful waters so you rest, so that you actually recover when you are foolish enough to think the solution in life is to work harder, to plow through, to do better, try harder. The Lord only leads us in right paths, Righteous paths that restore our soul. Which begs the question, who's the captain of the ship? Who is leading your life, Praxis? Is it the allure of pleasure? Maybe the tug of money? Or just the freedom of being autonomous? Do you love to follow God because he loves to lead to what truly satisfies. And here are God's credentials for the job. He ties it to his identity. He says, I will shepherd for the sake of my name. 
Back then, a person's name was everything, especially for a shepherd. Because if a shepherd lost a sheep or was a poor leader, it would be like a criminal record. You know, no one would seek his services. No one would trust him. Simply put, he would not and could not be a shepherd. And the Lord puts his holy, majestic name on, his, on the line. He bets his reputation. And if there is anything God is adamant about upholding, it's his good name. And we need to know this. To cling to that truth in the hardest of times, which is how David continues in verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, the times we want the most control in our life is when everything is spinning out of control. These moments reveal who's really in the driver's seat. We are most inclined to forsake following God and take the wheel when death strikes, when work sucks, when debt piles on, when plans are ruined, when the trials seem unending, the suffering unbearable, when every ray of light is swallowed up by the darkness. You and I naturally want to stop dead in our tracks and go our own way. But as frail, flawed people, we need someone else. We need someone smarter, greater, better to bring us through. And the only way that you will trust the Lord in the valley of shadows is if you believe wholeheartedly that he leads you in righteous path, that he does it for his glory and for your good. So begin cultivating that now. In the words of Pastor Kim, take the next step. If things for you are going well with God, bear fruit. Capitalize on this good season, on the growth that you're having, so that you are prepared for the barren ones. Shore up your faith so you have a solid infrastructure when things do get shaky, when the shadow of death is approaching. Now, interesting note, you ever wonder why it's the shadow of death? I think it's because it's temporary, because the sun is on the other side. So listen, yes, God will take you through mountaintop experiences where you bask in how good and glorious he is. But God will also take you through the pits where you have to learn to trust, to see how glorious he is. And you can sense this as David writes this verse. From here on out, he transitions from the third person pronoun to the second person pronoun, you. And this shift is subtle, but I think it's very significant. Think about it. David here is moving from talking about God to pouring his soul directly to God. You see that? In practice, we do well to incorporate this in our own lives. Our theology, our study of the word, and our walk with God needs to be laced with prayer, with communing with him. Otherwise, what's the point? We should find ourselves interweaving our talking about God with our talking to God. 
It's what we learned and heard this past Sunday. That prayer is about a relationship. And we need to rehearse this, especially in our moments of weaknesses. When things do get rough and we're tempted to forget God, who he is, as our loving shepherd. As the Lord guides you through the trials of life, the trenches and valleys, he is more than qualified. We find out that he's equipped with both a rod and a staff. Now, a shepherd's rod was typically an oak club. It was about two feet in length. It was whittled from the knot of a tree and had sharp bits of metal pounded into it. And so it sounds a little barbaric. But a skillful shepherd could swing the rod at intruders and even hurl it as a projectile towards any encroaching beast. He was kind of like this ghetto rural ninja of sorts. On the other hand, the staff was much longer with a hook at one end. And it was used by the shepherd to pry sheep free from a thicket or to push branches aside or to pull a sheep back from a steep edge. So you have the rod and the staff representing the shepherd's care and protection. Offense and defense, if you will. Both necessary instruments of a faithful shepherd. But beyond mere tools, they point to the one who carries them. Did you notice what David sets his attention on when the shadows tower in on him? His mind and heart are not consumed with the current predicament. He cast his thoughts and affections upon the Lord. For you, you are with me. And it's enough. David can traverse the darkest of roads. He can be surrounded by evil without fear. Why? Because of the Lord's presence. You see, the shepherd's rod, the shepherd's staff, they comfort me because they signal to me. They tell me that the shepherd is near. They are the symbols, the signs of the shepherd's presence. Like how a timid child finds his fears dispelled and courage mounting when he wears his dad's jacket, when he holds his father's hand. So the daunting valleys of death are vanquished in the presence of God, the shepherd who will not die. You're never in more need of God's presence than when you pass through life's valley. And you are never more aware of his presence when you pass through life's valley. I love how one pastor puts it. In the light, we are prone to wander. In the dark, we hug his knee. As David feels his soul shrinking back from the blackness, what he needs the most is the reassuring, the comforting grip of his father's hand. God knows where he is going. Trust him. The valleys of death are only short intermission to greener pastures. Look where the shepherd brings David. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is the second and shorter role David highlights to promote trust in God. So first, from the Lord is our shepherd to now the Lord is our host. 
the Lord is our host. And I love this progression. You know where the Lord leads his sheep? He brings them home. Those who follow and belong to the flock of God are made honor guests at his table. In ancient times, the, the host was required to provide and protect their guests at all costs. The visitor would enter the house and immediately his body would be soothed with ointment and his cup would be filled. I mean, it's a pretty sweet deal, right? Spa treatment and your favorite latte. But it gets better. After that, the guest would be ushered into the dining place where he could relax and enjoy the food prepared for him. And David here is painting the picture well for us. That the Lord is your personal waiter. He not only supplies all these accommodations, he does so abundantly. Praxis, the Lord only knows how to lavish. With God, it's always the fattest of calves. With God, it's always the best of robes. With God, the, uh, the ointment pours, the cup spills, and the food keeps coming. You know, it's one thing to survive trying times in verse 4. It's another to turn them into a triumphant feast in verse 5. Every detail in this verse is packed with richness. From the well-adorned table, to the flowing oil, to the brimming cup, the Lord does not know how to be frugal. But I think the most striking part is the setting. The setting. The Lord offers all of these luxuries, it says in the text, in the presence of David's enemies. I chew on that. God can be a gracious host in the lion's den. Imagine the amount of trust you must have in your host. If you are welcomed into an intimate setting, into a home, and you sit down to enjoy this meal, and lined all around you are criminals serving time on death row, the most nefarious kinds. You have your child traffickers, the serial rapists, the mass murderers. They're so close to you that you can feel their breath tickling your neck. How crazy would it be if you merely shrugged your shoulder said, eh, and continued eating in perfect peace. Naturally, panic and despair should seep into your bones. Your instinct should be to bolt out the door, to scramble away, unless you're confident in your host. Unless your host is capable of domesticating your enemies. Unless being in the presence of this great host outshines any threat, any danger your enemies can impose. Beloved, even when the most fearsome and vicious opponents surround you, with the Lord as host, there's no safer place. And this is where the rubber meets the road. From your condescending boss, to maybe your racist neighbor, to your endangered job, to your life-threatening cancer, they cannot do any more than what God permits. Having the Lord as your host doesn't mean your life will be without sorrow, pain, and danger. But having the Lord as host means you can be sustained through it all. The psalm crescendos in verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to lock on to that verb translated follow. It's translated, I think, a bit too weak here because it can be accurately uh, communicating or translated as pursue, even persecute. It's often used to describe enemies on the hunt, nipping at the heels. Persecution, as we usually know, carries a negative connotation. You expect to be persecuted by those who want to bring you down. You expect to be hunted by those who are seeking your life. And that's why this verse is so intriguing, because David says, God persecutes you. But his persecution is unlike those looking to harm. God persecutes you, the text says, with his goodness and mercy. Think about that. He attacks you with his love, and he is relentless. This is exactly the love being depicted here. A steadfast love, a love that will not waver, a love that does not tire, a love that will outrun and overwhelm you. Paul celebrates this truth in Romans. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. David's confidence, security in life lies not in what he does, but in what God does, in God's pursuit of him. Friends, does your heart resonate with this truth that surely God's goodness and mercy will pursue you your whole life, even in a pandemic, even in unemployment, even in singleness. And get this, God remains so faithful, he's there even when you are faithless, when loneliness dupes you and you compromise, or you seek, seek out ungodly relations, when you respond and meet criticism with anger, when a muddy future and discontentment give way to bitterness or worry, when you are ready to call it quits, God will not give up on his own. And that truth is meant to turn your heart to his. That reality is meant to right your ways because it's in God's unyielding pursuit that David ceases fleeing and turns and runs straight towards God. David comes to his senses. If God is striving after me all the days of my life for my good, why would I ever retreat from him? From the green pasture through the valley of death, David finally makes it home into the banquet hall of God. And this is what consumes him every single day as he declares, even so in another psalm, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You know why the house of the Lord, the tabernacle, the temple, heaven itself, you know why all of these locations are so great? Because it's his house. 
because he's there. Heaven is just where we go to celebrate, but God is why we celebrate. And so in the same, you know why you go to church? Why you read your Bible? Why you pray? Not to quiet your guilty conscience. Not to fulfill some Christian obligations. No, it's because God is there. Come to church because God of the church is there. Read the word because the God of the word is there. Pray because the God of prayer is there. To miss God in any of these endeavors is to carve out the heart of what it means to be a Christian. In this psalm, what draws us of being near the Good Shepherd, what inclines us closer is not so much the full cup or the lavish feast, but being received by the best host. What makes the Christian life so good is God. And he demonstrates how persistent he is in persecuting us with his unfailing love in the sending of his son. As love is manifested in a person, that Christ comes and Christ comes to pursue us. And Jesus announces, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 10. And he says this in John 14, in my father's house are many rooms. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What's eternal life? Not that you just live forever and ever and ever, but that you know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. John 17, 3. Jesus lays down his life to bring us home, to bring us to him. And that's the gospel, beloved. Yes, the Lord is my shepherd. Yes, the Lord is my host. Yes, the Lord is my portion. And all this can be wonderfully boiled down here. The Lord is mine. What's so great about the gospel is God. And all the other means and channels in the Christian life are towards the goal of treasuring him. God is the prize of our life's deepest yearnings and the end of our life's longest journey. And in reading Psalm 23, we are brought through the halls of David's heart to the culmination of his delight, God. Reading Psalm 23 fosters a desire to be near. And more than being a psalm to be read at funerals and in the atmosphere of death, Psalm 23 is a psalm to celebrate and to live. Because God is both shepherd and host. We can trust him for this life and for the next. Let's pray. God, there is a reason this psalm is a favorite among so many. It's because it exposes to us the depth of your heart, the intimacy of your care, protection, love, your graciousness, your faithfulness, that you are steadfast even when we swerve from the path that you've laid out. Father, I pray this would engender and promote within our hearts a renewed, renewed zeal and passion, desire to know you, to draw closer to you, to 
study and consume your word that we might linger over uh, these truths and find them bubbling up in our hearts, transforming our lives, that we would be bold in following after Christ. And so help us to think deeply about your word and about our lives, any discrepancies, Lord, that we might be reproved and refined to treasure Christ all the more. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.